The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. M.M. LaFleur is a women's workwear brand whose mission is to take the work out of dressing for work. Finally. Each M.M. LaFleur customer... Well... Yeah, of course. Uh, each M.M. LaFleur customer works one-on-one with an M.M. stylist who helps her build her work wardrobe in a systematic, personalized way. M.M. LaFleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling to today's busy, professional women. I'll just say it works for me, too, although I don't think of myself as especially professional. Um, I do love these clothes. They are almost all machine washable which is great. Um, they defy wrinkling, which is also great. Because um, I don't know about you, John, when you dress for travel. <laughs> <laughs> when I dress for travel. I dress like it's the 1960s and I'm getting on a Brana flight. And so I put on a full suit. Well, that's good. Well, see, I actually do like to dress up just a little bit, you know, because um, it's, I'm, I don't leave the house much in general. So like when I do leave the house, like I they treat it like a special occasion a lot of the time. Uh, and M.M. LaFleur stuff does genuinely work. They sent me some things to try. I actually, actually bought some M.M. LaFleur stuff before they even sponsored the show. Um, and I genuinely love it. Um, if you see me on television, sometimes I am wearing M.M. LaFleur stuff. Fantastic. And the coolest thing, the coolest thing about it though is, haven't gotten to yet, which is the personal styling. Um, you work with someone and you tell them what you need. And if you have specific dressing needs, like if you're traveling a lot, if you need sleeves to say, cover your tattoos on television um, or work pants that, you know, have pockets uh, or dresses with pockets, which is the thing that a lot of women are looking for and are weirdly hard to find. Um, it I, is not I, a subscription I, my look service. That I, if I were to ask for my look, it would be um, yeah. social media billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to dress like I want to dress like I have fuck you money, even though I do not. <laughs> but you already wear a hoodie, right? Like, right, that's that the thing. The only yeah, all right, cool. Yep, see, it's much easier for it's so much easier for guys. Um, if women just wore hoodies and jeans all the time, I don't think they'd be like marked as like up and coming billionaires. I think they'd be told that you know, you, why don't you look nicer today? Anyway, and maybe that's why um, that uh, that criminal wore that black uh, turtleneck. <laughs> this is getting away from the subject which is that these are cool clothes it's not a subscription service there's no commitment you won't be charged anything up front Uh, and these things the box that you order is called a bento box and once it arrives you have four days to try on everything and then you keep what you like and send back the rest it's completely free there's no like styling fee which some subscription services have Uh, and there's no commitment so you can try a bento box yourself. Visit mmbento.com. That is mmbento.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. We have a really great and important show today. I'm talking to Tim Faust, who is a healthcare policy expert you may have heard on another little liberal-leaning podcast called Chapo Trap House. 
That is where I first started paying attention to him. He is one of the most engaging healthcare policy experts I've ever talked to. His passion um, really sets him apart from a lot of the people that you might be seeing on TV these days. And I think also what sets him apart is his willingness to call bullshit on bullshit and his willingness to explicate the really progressive options we have when it comes to healthcare. Uh, towards the end of the episode, we get into something called healthcare justice or health justice. Uh, he's the first person I ever heard talk about that. It's a kind of new way of thinking about healthcare policy that I think is important and will become more important as liberals and progressives try to steer this ship of state away from the large orange iceberg that it's currently pointed at. Or who's driving. One of the two. I've totally lost the metaphor. In any case, Tim Faust. Welcome, Tim Faust, to the show. Hi. Hello. Good to be here. Hi. So you um, are a healthcare amateur turned somewhat professional. You're now studying it and you're touring the country doing explainers about single payer. That's right. Uh Right. I worked on ACA enrollment in 2013 in Florida. I ran some canvases there. And uh, kind of Florida's a, non-ex- a Medicaid non-expansion state. So there's a lot of folks who uh, um, I, had, uh, just, I had to go to work every day and ex- ex- explain to folks, hey, I'm so sorry, you're not quite poor enough uh, to receive the subsidies or to receive Medicaid or you're the wrong kind of poor because there's additional restrictions, um, but you don't make enough money to receive subsidies uh, premium subsidies uh, through the ACA. So you've just kind of been forgotten. And having to explain that to folks over and over and over again was uh, kind of messed me up. And I wanted to figure out, well, why do we permit this to happen? Like how how does a a democratically elected person actively choose to fail their own constituencies in like a pretty nakedly explicit way uh, for their own political benefit? And so I wanted to figure out why that happened. And I've been uh, researching or working in healthcare uh, since. And uh, after Trump got elected, I reckoned it was time to probably um, take that kind of out of myself and begin using it, uh, uh, talking to folks, fighting for single payer more explicitly. Uh, when this is all said and done, I'd love to work for Medicaid. But for now, I think uh, I'm spending a lot of my time trying to get folks amped up to work on single payer, building movements, building coalitions, building canvases. So yeah, doing a 15-city tour uh, between New York and Minneapolis in October and then uh, Florida to Texas and West Coast sometime next year as well. Just kind of talking about single payer, what it is, why it's good, and how it's just the first step in a long process of getting what we actually want. Well, you know, speaking of wanting to work for Medicaid, let's that's an optimistic viewpoint, I think, <laughs> because uh, aren't we right now in the middle of yet another battle over whether Medicaid is going to even continue to exist? This Cassidy Graham bill that is in the headlines right now, that is the, no, really, this time, no, really, we're going to repeal ACA. Like, it has Medicaid, like, in its sights. Correct? Well, yeah, I mean, the conservatives, or the, the GOP, and for a long time, the conservative wing of the Democratic Party have had Medicaid reform, entitlement reform, kind of in their scope, lined up Chris Kyle-like for 30, 40 years. Uh, they, it, it, it manifests in all these uh, different and perverse ways from things like the uh, Clinton welfare reforms in the uh, in, in, in the 90s to Cassidy Graham, which is just pretty explicitly an assault on 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 the poor and the vulnerable in the U.S. Now, Cassidy Graham is 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 the last in like a um, a line of 
terrible bills. And a lot of the tricks in this one aren't particularly new. It does have, it does have one uh, really particularly stupid uh, uh, new wrinkle inside of it, which is a redistribution of Medicaid funds across states or a reallocation of Medicaid funds across states. But fundamentally, like the, the core song remains the same. Uh, they want to roll back as many of the good reforms of the ACA as possible and just gut the entire idea of an entitlement program uh, and really kind of undermine federal ability to mandate state expenses on covering, uh, on, on, on covering people. So it sucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, but there's a pretty good chance it doesn't pass, right? Because the ones before it haven't passed, and this one is uh, somehow even worse thought out than the rest of them. But we do live in the Enrique Iglesias zone now uh, where nothing is forbidden anymore. <laughs> So, I mean, the, the smart money would have said Trump wouldn't have gotten elected, uh, and that uh, didn't work out so good. Um, so, of course, any any threat to the uh, to healthcare in America has to be taken seriously. I just hope this thing is like shucked, gutted, and left for dead sooner rather than later, so we can get working on the the actual thing, so we can get started on the actual work. I, I feel like there's a lot of places that are explaining sort of the specific bad things about this bill, you know, from. Uh, it would outlaw, you know, coverage that um, included abortion starting next year. Um, it would uh, eliminate any kind of opioid epidemic funding. I could just go a laundry list. Do you want to say a favorite thing, bad thing that it does? Because then, because it's there's a long, long list, right? Yeah. So there's, I mean, it's it's you know any any bad guy that's ever had an idea in the past seven years about how to repeal uh, or get rid of part of the ACA or make healthcare harder to get for people. Um, to better subsidize corporate interests, kind of like got their shot. Right. Everybody threw all their darts at the dartboard and they scraped it off and said, here's the bill. Yeah. Uh, the bill is divided into This is the expanded universe version of right. ACA repeal. This is a, I, uh, the, the Spider-Man rogues galleries of uh, uh, terrible people <laughs> with terrible ideas. Right. And so like no, no pre-existing conditions, no essential health benefits. I, I actually, I mean, I'm only naming these things because I do feel like probably listeners of this program, if they're Pod Save America listeners, like have a sort of basic understanding that this bill is bad. Well, it's, uh, yes. But I want to get to what I want to get to with you is actually sort of the way that it's bad in the thinking behind it. Right. And the way that it sort of is trying to force people to think about the way that we do healthcare in America. Like, it's, like, I feel like, I said this to you before the show, I feel like we've been on, kind of despite ourselves, a leftward trending understanding of healthcare. You know, like the ACA was a part of that. And Cassie Graham is like, no, 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 no. Like throw themselves in the tracks to like shift the thinking into this really mercenary view of the way that healthcare should work. Well, yeah. I mean, here's the paleoconservative of what healthcare is, right? The idea yeah. of uh, uh, individual accountability reigning supreme, the idea that uh, you should be saddled with the cost of your own healthcare, even though we know and we've known since the 1880s that, uh, that nobody can afford the cost of their own healthcare. So Cassidy Graham uh, focuses on non-Medicaid reforms, just kind of rolling back in individual parts of the ACA. It doesn't have an express uh, 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 rollback of pre-existing conditions or essential health benefits, but it, gets, it lets states um, file waivers to let them do it themselves. States' rights is just here a slogan for um, letting states uh, uh, write their own more easily lobbied 
uh, uh, reforms to uh, the policy to uh, harm people. Then it's got a bunch of uh, Medicaid, uh, a full-on kind of full-throated assault in Medicaid. Um, it terminates the uh, ACA Medicaid expansions. It takes uh, uh, eliminates uh, retroactive eligibility, which is I'm on Medicaid. I get hit by a car in January 1st, or I'm, I'm poor. I'm eligible for Medicaid, but I'm not on Medicaid. I get hit by a car in January 1st. Right now, like in the way, in the before times, uh, you can still enroll uh, uh, in, in Medicaid afterward to get your bills covered, which is obvious. Providers want that so they can get money. People want that because they can't afford their own uh, uh, healthcare costs. That's being that's being scrapped, um, and it uh, it dis- distributes Medicaid as a as a block grant. Uh, a block grant is a big chunk of money, a fixed amount of money that uh, uh, changes year over year, kind of on a fixed rate. It's had a, 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 a pointed ahead of time. Um, that's just given to money, uh, just given to states, and states are told, "Do what you will with this." This is a really, really different. A model of financing Medicaid than what we currently have the entitlement program. It's a really different model of like even understanding quote unquote insurance. And I use insurance the word loosely because one of the motivations behind this bill seems to be to kind of make people forget that the whole point of insurance is that the people who don't need it pay for the people who need it. Like that. Right. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> half of all half of all medical spending uh, comes from the care of 5% of people, right? People in right. general don't get sick. The idea of a risk pool is that you've got a bunch of people and most of them don't get sick at all. And some of them get sick. And of those that get sick, some get really sick and some just get kind of sick. And so you can pool all your money together and use that to pay for uh, the care of people that get sick. And also by having such a large pool, you can do a lot of things that a monopsony, which is like a single buyer in a market, uh, can do. Like um, – pull down costs to adjust level, um, use the uh, the act of paying to kind of enforce standards and enforce uh, procedures and guidelines. Uh, uh, and like generally everybody understands this is how insurance worked. I mean, we, we had a before time. You say uh, everyone ha- generally understands how that's how insurance worked, but it seems like the senators who are endorsing this bill, like literally are trying to say that insurance doesn't work that way. I mean, that, that's a that's a that, that's a particularly perverse phenomenon. Yeah. Um, we've already had this experiment of individual accountability. Uh, it was the it was the Gilded Era. It was you uh, had to either like have a family doctor that you paid for because you were aristocratic, or you had to go like beg at the free clinic, uh, or you had to be like saddled under a a, a, a lifetime of debt. Um, and these, I mean, these uh, uh, Jeff Stein at Vox, uh, who I like quite a bit. Um, did an interview, uh, performed an interview with, I think, nine senators who were mm-hmm. backing Cassidy Graham uh, earlier today. Today is uh, Wednesday the 20th. Yeah. And uh, none of these folks can, can, can fucking uh, articulate a single defense, not even a defense, can articulate a single reason to really advocate for Cassidy Graham. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's purely a political maneuver, which is really the most, I think, uh, what are you talking before, one of the most disturbing things about the entire bill, right? Like it insists uh, 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 kind of nakedly and falsely that it's intended to help the vulnerable. Like Cassidy Graham, like the language around Cassidy Graham is attempting to like, oh, we need to help these states that didn't expand Medicaid and therefore like they've got a population that's sicker and poor, not getting care, and like, why are only four states getting a third of uh, uh, the, the ACA money? And it ignores fundamentally the reason for why that happened, right? Like, the reason not all states expanded Medicaid is because a lot of governors like Rick Perry and a lot of uh, uh, legislatures like uh, the Florida legislature chose not to do so as a way to give the finger to yeah, Obama. Right. It was literally to, to spite right? Obama. It was not out of any kind of like reasoned policy, you know, argument. 
It was right. it was literally just to say fuck you to Obama and that's it. And I actually I, I also noticed that they're kind of using this language of individualization and also protecting people um, to, to defend this bill. Literally, this is something Cassidy said, um, where you live should not determine how healthy you are. Which right, I mean, they, I agree. They, they, sure, <laughs> you know, they've done a very good job at like uh, saying because the, the, a cool thing that's happened is we saw with uh, uh, the BCRA and every other fucking uh, 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 variation of this abomination that appears before us. People go and they go and protest and they go and protest their senators. Mitch McConnell gets yelled at, which is great. He should be yelled at literally all the time. Every politician should be yelled at literally all the time uh, until they do good things. Um, and uh, they're getting shook, so they're adopting the language. I think the most egregious example is uh, is Cassidy talking to Jimmy Kimmel, uh-huh. saying like, "Oh yeah, like nobody should have to um, be burdened with uh, care they can't pay for," and then doing an immediate one eighty and advancing this thing instead, right? Uh, uh, and so, like, they're, they're they're pointing at the problem, right? They're pointing at the problem of saying, "Hey, healthcare distribution, healthcare payment in." Uh, across the states is not equal. And they're choosing to ignore entirely that the reason these things uh, are imbalanced are of their own machination and are entirely reversible uh, by just accepting free money. It's, 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 it was a free federal funds matching program that expanded Medicaid for people under 138 FPL and removed uh, kinds of means testing. Uh, 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 across the board, and they denied it. Now, and then, so like that's that, that that's brutal. That's savage. Like this is this is an, uh, an intentional act of failing a constituency and condemning folks to live uh, uh, in fear of their own bodies. At the same, so that the Republicans, you know, I, I hope uh, uh, every single one of them sees the millions of ghosts that they're creating. And uh, <laughs> if there is an afterlife, I hope they get some, some kind of uh, some kind of retribution because they're not going to get it here because capital protects its own. At the same time, like the, this is a obviously the uh, the causes of these problems and the, the people who are at fault for uh, this wave of mutilation across the U.S. are entirely within the GOP. But are also, it is worth noting that the mechanism through which the mm-hmm. ACA was created did create this vulnerability, like, uh, did like leave this vulnerability available, right? Uh, by expanding Medicaid, which does have uh, uh, a partial state funding, like states got to like uh, pay for their own programs, and removing, uh, rolling back some of the Clinton era welfare reforms, uh, which are all predicated on the idea of, of wanting to find like uh, the deserving versus the undeserving poor and separate them. There's this big fear in healthcare policy and not a lot of welfare policy, safety net policy, that like giving somebody who's not quite poor enough a little bit of help is terrible. And we we can't ever have that happen. So instead, I would say that that's a fear. That's a that's a rhetorical feint by conservatives and centrists. Uh, they, and neoliberals they, they, that it's not right. actually a real concern because no, we give not, people because... we give we give companies <laughs> shit they don't deserve all the time right like we give all kind we give people things they don't deserve all the time right we only care about like this very very petty bean counting and means right. testing and finding the worthy and the unworthy when if you're poor already folks. poor that's the only thing we right. care about if you're already poor we don't want you to get something you don't deserve but if you're middle class and you want to write off your mortgage sure you know oh, I mean, shit, if, like we if don't care if you make six, seven <laughs> figures a year, like we don't even have tax brackets invented for you yet. Yeah, uh, it's like a, uh, it's it, it's 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 pretty naked, uh, uh, and it's 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 two facedness. And I don't want to get too far into it, but I also want to point out because I think it's a good piece of history for us liberals to be aware of people who consider themselves Democrats. Um, that this whole bill, like um, Cassidy Graham is based on Rick Santorum's understanding of the Clinton welfare reform. 
right? Like right. that, the, its whole structure actually is based on a Clinton era proposal that most of us now realize was bad, but was well, all, I mean, a lot of us, a lot of folks realized it was bad at the time yes, as well, right? It, yes. was, it was an attempt to solve a problem that, that, that didn't exist. It was the deserving and poor whoops, issue. It was, it was exactly 20, the same. 20 years later, we've made the most vulnerable, even more vulnerable. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do that uh, ever again. And so like this, this, this kind of like dragon scale approach of we're going to find like these little buckets of people that are deserving of this amount of money. And you need to like, uh, we're going to build a sliding scale that has a, like, it's, it's, it's a very technocratic solution, right? Mm-hmm. And technocracy loves technocracy more than it loves anything else. It loves the idea of we're going to build this big puzzle to solve. Uh, uh, and that creates vulnerabilities, right? That creates gap, that creates gaps uh, and cracks and people fall through these cracks. And these cracks are then used as leverage points by the bad guys when they want to dismantle the entire thing. A, uh, a federally funded single payer, which just treats everybody as being in the same risk pool, doesn't have the same kinds of problems that prompted the uh, NFIB versus Abelius lawsuit, which uh, uh, unprecedentedly uh, was successful and then gave the states the ability to deny Medicaid expansion, right? We, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to Monday, mor- Monday morning quarterback it, but uh, uh, the entire like means-tested structure of the ACA is what gave the states the ability to deny Medicaid expansion, which has caused all of these problems, which are now being used to advocate for grand Right, and it's also what created kind of the coverage gap problems that a lot of people point to when they say the, that ACA is not working. Yep. Um, those coverage gaps exist because of means testing. And those exactly. coverage gaps exist because ACA is not generous enough, not because it's too generous. These days, you can get practically everything on demand. It's true. Like this podcast. True. It is true. Uh, listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. I understand some people listen to podcasts on even like sped up time, which I haven't progressed quite to. Oh, that yeah. Yet, but yeah. Give 1.2 t- speed a try, and uh, you, you'll, you'll all of a sudden, people in the real world will be talking like they're on drugs slow. Yes. And also, I guess you can increase your podcast listening by like point, you know, by a factor yeah. of 1.2. It does sort of uh, beg the question, though, which is like, why are you doing this? If you're just trying to get through <laughs> shit, well, like it's supposed to be both informative and entertaining. So like at a certain point, you're going so fast that it's like, what? Just don't listen. You know, it's sort of like when like like uh, like when you can skip a level. If you're in a not video enjoying game. it, don't listen. If like, you're oh, not wow, enjoying it, don't listen. You can skip this level on this video game. Well, you know, what you can also do is skip the whole thing. What sort of like stamps.com's <laughs> offers you the opportunity to skip the post office. One, is that, that what you're good. trying to say? That was good. Yes. Stamps.com, skip the post office. Stamps.com, you can online. skip the post office. You can get postage on demand. Print Anything you can do at the post office. I mean, I think you and I could probably come up with some stuff that you can do at the post office that you can't do at your desk. Uh, but anything that you would people involving watching, postage. Waiting on postage. long lines. Uh, looking for parking. <laughs> These are all things that you can't do in your home. Um, telling a civil servant that you appreciate their service, which is something I try to do at the post office. Turning into um, a radical right-wing conservative for the 10 minutes you're inside. <laughs> <laughs> but you can do it from your desk. You can still do that at your desk, I guess. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. But People do. It, you know, with, with stamps.com. Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage <laughs> for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And of course, unlike the post office, it never closes. You can get postage whenever you need it. Sweet. And if you would like, you can use my code FRIENDS for a special offer. Four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. It's my code FRIENDS at stamps.com for a special offer, uh, four weeks for free and a digital scale. You, I think, click on the radio microphone. You do. Um, on the corner. Click on yeah. the microphone. So. 
The code is FRIENDS. Yeah. Stamps.com. And never go to the post office Never again. go to the post office again. So we, we've done, I think, you know, we kind of traveled through Cassie Graham a little bit. And you mentioned some of the things that have led up to this moment, like mainly in the most recent past, like, you know, the structure of Cassie Graham kind of looks like welfare reform, intentionally so. Um, uh, and we've also, you, you know, kind of you said Monday, Monday, quarterback, Monday morning quarterback the ACA a bit. But I've always been fascinated by the fact that Americans don't seem to realize like how fucked up our healthcare system is like, or they realize it, but they think it's just everyone's fucked up that same way, but we're not <laughs> like, it's a pretty unique, no, like, you know, God bless us. It is a uniquely fucked up healthcare system. Um, do you want to do just a reader's digest if possible version of like how we got here? Yeah, I'll keep it super brief. Uh, the idea of insurance began in Germany <laughs> under Otto von Bismarck, who, um, I don't know why you laugh. This, I, this, I'm, this, this, this I'm up for anything uh, that begins with Otto von Bismarck. I'm I'm up for it. So he was super afraid of socialism, right? Um, hopefully we can bring that fear <laughs> back. Uh, he was afraid that the socialists would take over and and do things like give healthcare to people, and that people would or, respond like, to that. He was afraid of socialism sort of because it would be appealing to people. Let's be very clear. Like what he was scared right. of was not like creeping socialism because just some generalization of socialism is bad, but because he saw that the, he saw the appeal of it. Right. And it, it articulated relief from things that Bismarck needed in order to in order to maintain power. So he developed in the 1880s a compulsory social health insurance program which, in which uh, uh, employers and employees split costs of buying into an insurance pool. You might recognize this from a lot of the ways that employer-based insurance works in the U.S. Uh, and that kind of set the, the – so both the, the people that uh, employed labor and labor themselves had skin in the game, so to speak. And together they put together these social health insurance funds. Eventually they were expanded to cover all people regardless of whether they were uh, whether they were working or not but it kind of built the idea of what insurance can be and where money comes from cool in the US uh, 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 we had a similar kind of agitation but not nowhere near nowhere near as realized right we had a bunch of folks who were sick we realized that uh, uh, illness forced people into poverty we didn't yet have like the staggering level of, of, of medical debt that a person can, uh, can can accrue back then. But certainly we had the idea, uh, we or we had the lived experience that people could get sick and through their sickness be compelled into poverty. And being poor in uh, uh, 1890 is uh, uh, probably uh, still worse than being poor in 2017, uh, although it's still pretty brutal today. Uh, and so there was a lot of pr- progressive agitation for welfare reform, right? Under Theodore Roosevelt, you've got labor, you've got the Progressive Party that wanted to, in their own words, eliminate sickness as a cause of poverty. And so they kind of built a, a, a prototype of the insurance model. Uh, you've got buy-in from the employers, the employees in the state, and that all was thrown out the window when uh, when, when Wilson built Roosevelt. Uh, uh, in 32. Uh, but even doctors were saying, man, this is enough. Like we can't afford to like get our incomes because we, we don't have enough patients that can afford to pay for us. Uh, we don't like having to work in hospitals where we watch the sick and the dying uh, grow sicker and, and, and have to have to cast them out. This sucks. So a group of doctors formed a thing called the Committee on the Cost of Medical Care, uh, which was independently funded, which wanted to look at, well, where do costs come from? Why do prices grow? Why can't anybody afford to pay their health care bills? And it, I mean, that document really uh, uh, served as the intellectual underpinning of the of modern American health insurance. Of course, the AMA then threw it immediately under the bus and chose not to advocate for it. Uh, and how uh, did it, how was it the, the framework for modern insurance 
if it got thrown under the bus? It, was it was it the framework for modern like government paid for health insurance? This idea that we're going to it's because it, it sounds a little bit like Medicaid or Medicare. It explained the idea of, oh, like no one can afford to pay for. Cause, so before in this before era, before the committee cost of medical care, everybody had to pay out of pocket for all their own stuff. Right. There, there was no. Uh, risk pool. There was nobody else to pool your money with. It was just if you have, you've got a big bag of like various silver coins or whatever, and you use those to pay for your tuberculosis uh, or other, like, Dongerman's grip, whatever old timey disease that you have. Gout. That always seems like a Gilded Age disease. Yeah, yeah. You've got a, a combination of black lung and gout, and you need to pay for it to, to the doctor who comes to your house with a big bag of silver coins. Uh, the idea of like building organizations that help take care of funding for healthcare or building risk pools uh, uh, didn't really exist at all in the U.S. That's what the Committee on the Cost of Medical Care put together. And it advocated for the idea of, well, we can do this— uh, uh, and actually, I don't know if I I, I don't have it in, in, I don't have my notes on the actual CMC report in front of me. Just that uh, it put together like a vision for how healthcare can be recognized, how a national insurance program can work. A lot of that was based on the uh, the, the the Bismarck model. The AMA threw it under the bus, chose not to advocate for it uh, because they had price controls. Right, um, one of the the best thing like the AMA has been for most of its entire life a way to fix prices. One of its very first acts when it got together after the Civil War was to tell traveling doctors. Uh, uh, what the floor for procedures was so that it could uh, keep costs consistent across the U.S., which uh, uh, of course leads to uh, price inflation uh, in a country where people are suffering from like the ravages of the Civil War. Uh, And that's kind of where things sat for a while until – Blue Cross formed in, I think, outside Dallas, Dallas or Fort Worth. Uh, Blue Cross was a collaboration between teachers' unions in the area and a local hospital. Um, and they kind of pioneered the model of, oh, okay, well, like, with a given provider group uh, and a, a, a given union or a given like employer uh, uh, employee group, uh, we'll all pull our costs together. We can use them at this hospital. And it wasn't very comprehensive. Uh, like it wasn't like a very extensive uh, uh, health care program, but it was based on kind of the employer-employee or rather the, the, the union model. And it was associated with facilities, associated with uh, uh, the uh, Blue Cross hospitals in Dallas. After World War II, as the story goes, uh, 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 the government instituted a, a wage freeze. And so employers looking for ways to kind of juice um, their benefits packages to, uh, to, to, to pull more people uh, into working for them began adding insurance as a form of or non-wage compensation. Uh, that got passed through the IRS. So they got uh, a, a, tax break for, a tax break for that, which is one of the biggest expenses uh, in, in healthcare in the U.S. And over time, that became kind of a cornerstone of how uh, insurance is allocated the, through your employer. Over the past uh, 60, 70 years, it's been used like the, there's been recalcitrance to develop a national model uh, on various sides. At one point, unions uh, didn't want to expand insurance uh, because that or didn't want to build a national insurance program because uh, union based employer insurance was like a very, very good carrot to have and a great way to build a, a, a union membership. The AMAs fought existently the entire time. And as we develop this uh, insurance industry, they've also obviously uh, been loath to give up uh, their entire industry for the benefit of the population. That kind of brings us to where we are now, where we've got this very, very patchwork way of, uh, of, of how people how people get uh, uh, insurance for healthcare. In the 60s, we recognize that, oh shit, well, like fundamentally paying for the healthcare costs of people that are sick uh, or old or not working isn't very profitable at all. Like taking care of sick people uh, uh, is not a money-making endeavor. 
So uh, these, this coalition permitted the state to inst- introduce the idea of Medicaid and Medicare, uh, which are federal programs in the case of Medicare and federal state programs in the case of Medicaid that uh, take care of people that are of a certain age uh, or are under a certain income. And there were plans to expand that to include young people, uh, uh, which is particularly salient now uh, because uh, I think a lot of people are shackled to jobs they don't want to have or jobs that are bad to them because they have kids, then you got to pay for the health care or the insurance cost of those kids. Uh, but those plans were gutted by incrementalists almost immediately. Uh, and so that, so the, kind of these, oh, like we can't afford to make a profit off taking care of these people. Let's have the federal government subsidize it was kind of uh, the uh, modus operandi for the past half century. You can see that in the ACA as well. We've got a bunch of people that were uninsured uh, because they weren't employed or their employers weren't offering insurance. Uh, and so the ACA was intended to build a program through which the federal government would uh, basically bribe insurers through mass subsidies to make their – to uh, by paying off their premiums so that these folks could get insured instead of covering them through a, a federal program. Right. And what the ACA did, if I can just jump in a little bit because I think the mindset issue here, if I borrow for a term – um, is that the ACA perpetuated the idea that they're of deservingness, right? Like um, that there were some Absolutely. people that were poor, but 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 we're working hard and deserve to have health care. So we're going to take care of them. Uh, and it also, if anything, uh, you know, kept people thinking that employer based health insurance was a good thing. Like it, it, it emphasized the whole like, if you like your plan, you can keep it rhetoric, which whatever true or not, like that's what that was about. Um, and it, it made you that was the norm that enshrined that as the norm that you should be getting your health care through your insurer. And these are the things that it should cover. And the, what the government is there to do is right. to make sure you have good insurance, not necessarily to to be on your side. And non-employer, non-employer in, in, insurance is a, a kind of the accident, not the rule. Yeah, there's there's three things on that. One, like the ACA did do some really, really cool stuff. I got to uh, right, uh, like right. you got to recognize uh, when a good thing happens, when the ACE, like there's this neoliberal tendency, right, of treating healthcare as a commodity. Healthcare isn't a commodity because you, like, you, you don't go to the store and buy a six pack of healthcare. It's not, not a thing like beer or bubble gum or Diet Coke or whatever, where you can buy a quantity of it and, like, you can uh, and increase that quantity over time. Healthcare is not a commodity. Healthcare is a thing that, uh, um, it doesn't have a normal curve, right? People aren't smart shoppers right. uh, when it comes to healthcare costs. They, they, when their bodies fall apart because we're just big bags of goo, we don't understand. People need care, and they don't have the ability to price shop or be a smart shopper. And also, and this is another big flaw in our system, is that everyone's healthcare is slightly different, um, and that you, your form of you know kidney disease might respond differently to my form of kidney disease, and it might different things might work for both of us. Great, great example of that is HIV AIDS, which has a, a, a I think a list of like right. sixteen drugs that can, can be combined in various forms to uh, uh, create the cocktail and treat them. And other countries treat it that way; they bill per disease, right? Right. Well, we have Medicare does that in the U.S. and Medicaid does that in the U.S., but employer based health insurance, it's all you know just incremental. Little fees. Right. It's, it's that, the fee for service model where you go to the doctor yeah. and you want to, I don't know, like get your hand measured or something. I don't know what, what people do with doctors. Uh, and so the doctor <laughs> charges you for the ruler, charges you for the band aids, charges you for the tape. Right. Uh, and all these things are put together in a line item and then negotiated with your insurer to get the actual cost and then paid for uh, on that uh, that skew based fee for service model. So wherever the, right. the, wherever the ACA acted against this neoliberal tendency, the commoditization of healthcare, permitting, uh, permitting a for profit model, subsidizing insurers, like it only fed into this kind of broken. 
ideological bent. But where it acted against that, Medicaid expansion, unilaterally good, defining essential health benefits, like saying here is what health care is and here is what health care is not. Uh, an insurance plan to be uh, uh, adequately rec- – uh, an insurance plan to be adequate must contain uh, coverage for these kinds of care. Um, that's a unilaterally good thing. The definition of – or the introduction of pre-existing conditions like into fucking yep. common vernacular is a unilaterally good thing. These things are good. These things act – I want to – I'm going to summarize here, which is that the most socialist parts of the ACA were the most successful parts. The most generous, most socialisty parts were the parts that people like. Exactly. And the parts that people want to keep. It's the market-based stuff that people have a problem with and that is not working. 100%. Still. But the, the, you're yeah. exactly right. Like where the ACA bucked the tendency that uh, uh, of how health works in the U.S., it was successful and people love it. And that's really important to fight for. Where it like perpetuated – uh, uh, the the commoditization of healthcare, or the neoliberal motto, is where it's beginning to show, or where where it did show uh, its faults and its failings, right? And uh, that's a that's a bummer. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I'm going to move us. I'm going to move us to what hopefully comes next, right? So if we if we can agree and we can show prove it's the most socialisty parts of the ACA that work, it's the it's the most market parts that people have a problem with. That is where Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill comes in. Absolutely. So, uh, yes. It says, let's take the parts of the ACA that work, which Medicare expansion, Medicaid, and do more, right? Right. Uh, Sanders' Medicare for All bill is a fundamentally a, a single-payer program. It's one of the most, I think, refreshingly ambitious pieces of uh, uh, legislation I've, uh, I've I've ever read, which is pretty exciting. Wow. Um, like it, it, and how it, have you read a lot of legislation? Have you, are you a legislation buff? A lot of healthcare uh, legislation. <laughs> it, it, it's relatively interesting. Uh, uh, and they use big font uh, and they double space. It's easy to scroll through. So you feel pretty accomplished for getting through a 98-page document uh, uh, in, in, in an hour. But it's a fundamental. It, it, it really is. I mean, I've heard this. It's the only thing it has in common, let's say, with, with Cassidy Graham is it is uh, pretty radical. Right. Parachute, which I believe we've discussed. I genuinely love my parachute sheets. Um, the only ad I've ever gotten John to be on, my John, not you, John, or the other you, John. A lot of Johns. But my John. There's really? a lot of Johns. Really, when you name your kid John, it's like, <laughs> hey, maybe maybe go for a second pitch, you know? What's the second idea? I, Most common or, name in history. You know, Literally a book in the Bible. <laughs> It is a little confusing to me, like why you would name your children something that like literally like if you say the name in a crowd, like a fourth of the men kind of turn to you. But, you know, hey, um, it's like naming a dog spot, except what? Well, I mean, I guess you have sort of like that's a cool like retro thing to do. So so is the name John. Anyway, sheets. John loves them. We have the we have the linen ones. We also recently got um, parachute uh, towels which I guess are new. Cool. Uh, they are awesome. Uh, they're enormous, which you are a fellow smaller person, I think, like okay. me. Yep. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I really love it when like the towel like is basically like you could use it as a sheet, as a real sheet. That's like you good. really wrap yourself are up you a, it, uh, Are you a you one know? towel person or a two towel person? Well, because I have the longer hair, I'm a two towel person. I have a system where I have a, they, they move through a cycle and they start as upper body towels and then they become lower body towels and then they're done. But I always have two. <laughs> I find it's more, you know, I can wander around my house like a, like a, some kind of a, some kind of a king or a sultan, you know? Do you wrap one around your body and one around your shoulders? Yes. Or, oh, okay. 
right. the, you don't do the, the turban thing because that's what the lady, that's like what I do. No, I, I do not. I, I imagine not would also that. be a good look for you. Barely, anyway, barely the, the hanging on to the hair that I have. <laughs> the parachute sheets are great. A parachute towels are great. Um, they are fantastic quality, best fabrics and materials, really modern design. The parachute sheets, pillowcases um, have the f- uh, thing where they uh, don't have a flap on the end. They have a, they work like a sham, you know, they have cool. the sort of envelope style. Oh, I like that. Cause then you're never all um, of a sudden realizing clothing. like your hand is on like pillow unprotected, you know, unguarded. Exactly. Who wants that? Exactly. And it's like very, very neat look. It's a very like sort of, you know, posh hotel look. Which, Parachute. You know, we I think like. they're great. Uh, and by the way, my, if you heard, I think you might've just heard pundit sniffling, um, but don't oh. worry, you know, she's fine. She's fine. She's been okay, to good. the vet. She's all checked out. So don't worry about that. How does she feel about parachute? Does she love the parachute sheets? She does love parachute sheets. She uh, she uses them 100% the same amount as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think the amount of cat hair on my parachute sheets will attest. Our cats love them too. Cats, man. Uh, and if you visit parachutehome.com slash friends, you get free shipping and returns. I will also point out if you return uh, the sheets, which I do not think you will, uh, they donate them to Habitat for Humanity. Cool. Um, and they also do donations to the United Nations Foundation for Malaria Prevention Bed Nets. And you can actually do that donation yourself on the site when you buy sheets, which I have done for real. Uh, And again, uh, promo code slash friends at parachute.com for a 60 night trial. Parachutehome.com. Is it a code friends or slash friends? It's slash friends. I always get the slash and the code confused, but friends friends. basically. Parachute.com slash friends. Your enthusiasm is is infectious. Oh, this this, yeah. this this is the thing that I love. Um, I love this and uh, my girlfriend, and she's a healthcare lawyer, so kind of get the best of both worlds. And also, apparently, wrestling. You also love. Wrestling. I do love wrestling. Wrestling is the highest form of theater. Um, it is the only dramatic art that uh, uh, that I care about. I worked in the theater for a couple of years. I went to school in the theater scholarship, and uh, then I discovered wrestling. And it's—I mean, I, I grew—I grew up with it. My, my dad was a big Crush Losowski fan, and uh, uh, wrestling is the perfect. It's better than opera. Um, opera, I, opera is really, really good I, for like I don't know, getting stoned and looking at. Um, like that's pretty fun. But uh, professional wrestling is, uh, I think, the. It's a combination of like masculine drag and contemporary opera in a way that uh, uh, I mean it, it's 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 stupid in ways that I think are beautiful. Dumb is good, uh, and I love it so much. I find it interesting, and I want to talk to you more about it at some later date. Sweet, but I'll jump ahead. We are going to have to get back to I. Th- I would you know the ACA. Speaking of villains, speaking of theater. Speaking of you know um, people getting thrown to the mat again and again and again, but finally getting back up. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. That sounds great. So uh, the Affordable Care Act perpetuated this this idea that uh, health insurance is health care and that you need to like build a, you need to subsidize the private market in order to take care of it. You have a multi-payer model. uh, You've got the profit motive in there. And that's just the way that healthcare works. Uh, The single payer movement, which has been fighting for decades now, I think scored uh, uh, a, a significant uh, victory with the introduction of Bernie Sanders's Medicare for All bill um, this year, and more importantly, with the immediate co-sponsorship of a third of the Democratic caucus, which is, I believe, unprecedented. And everyone that's even thinking about 2020, everyone that's ever written 2020 in the margin of their, you know, Senate notebook 
right 2020 plus me whether those people whether it's out, it's out of like a, a moral sense of moral obligation or just like I don't know, naked opportunism. Like, I'm fine with that either way for right now, right? Like, people understand that suddenly we've gone, uh, the Dems have gone from being the party that tells us that single payer will never ever happen to the three folks that are most often thrown around for 2020 um, accepting or co sponsoring Bernie's bill. Now, whether that's just like nominal uh, uh, co sponsorship, whether they'll end up being like Anthony Rendon in California and like they'll back out of the actual progressiveness of it, like, is to be seen. But it is indicative of a broader movement that is being successful. It's creating the pressure. Like there's removed the Overton window. Right. No, exactly. I mean, that, that is done. The, uh, the, uh, well, we've thrown a, a, a brick through the Overton window and, uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, and it, it's good. Like the, a, a lot of that has to do with, uh, the counter protests against the ACA repeal mm-hmm. and replacement. There's a certain irony to the fact that Paul Ryan of all people ended up being the person that launched the most, uh, uh, impassioned defense of the Affordable Care Act uh, via negativa, right? It wasn't until that mm-hmm. Paul Ryan threatened to gut and destroy the ACA that uh, activists really took to town halls to fight, uh, uh, not just for keeping the ACA, but for expanding it and for building a more robust, universal, single-payer healthcare program. You've got the ADAPT activists that literally put their bodies in the line, chained themselves to people's offices. You've got town halls where folks um, across ages, races, and income levels are screaming at their senators, uh, which again is very, very, very good. And it's all because uh, uh, the, the ACA bit off or sorry, the GOP bit off more than they could chew with repeal in place. Like uh, there's a certain irony to, uh, to, to that fact. And it's also kind of lamentable that uh, uh, I, I think the Dems never really stood behind the ACA in the way that they ought to have. It was, it was uh, promised as an incremental step to a, a, a better healthcare model, but nobody ever took any steps afterward. It was just kind of the, the, the thing that we in had. In a weird way, like this did force Democrats to do that, right. right? Like it forced us to reckon with what parts of the ACA worked and what parts didn't. And we have now... A lot of people figure it out. It's the generous parts of the ACA that work. Right. So let's build on that. Exactly. And that's Medicare for all. And I want to get to some of the more exciting things about this bill. Um, I, I feel like it's such a revolutionary thing in and of itself. Like it just gets talked about in terms of like top line. Like it's Medicare for all. It's a form of single payer. Yay. But I wonder if we could get in a little more detail about what exactly is so exciting. About sure. It. So there's a couple of things that uh, everyone knows about that are exciting. There are a couple of things that are in the bill that I think are really exciting. And then there's kind of the the, the indication of what comes next, right? Like single payer is a good thing. It's a great thing, but it is only step one in a very long process of achieving a new form of actual health justice in America. Things that are in Bernie's bill uh, that are dope. It's ambitious. It kind of lays all of its cards on the table. Like there is no pre-equivocation. There's no pre-compromise. It uh, demands a bunch of things. Top line, uh, uh, particularly uh, interesting to me, full federal funding for abortion, no exceptions. Great. Uh, It defines and expands an extensive set of essential health benefits, uh, including reproductive uh, uh, care, vision and dental care for all American residents and gives authority to the Secretary of Health and Human Services to um, expand the definition of residents as they see fit. It has no cost sharing, no out-of-pocket costs, with the exception of a 250 per annual uh, uh, per year cap on prescription drugs, uh, which I understand, but I don't like that. But still, that's uh, that's substantially better than uh, uh, what high deductible plans give you. uh, I want to pause and just and just say about that reproductive health thing that that is needed so badly, and it would it would allow women to know that their reproductive health is cared for no matter who their insurer is. 
you know, no matter what they do for a living, which is right now kind of where we are. Oh, yeah. Right, you know? right now, I, I believe the majority of, uh, of, of abortions in the U.S. are paid for out of pocket uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of out of pocket costs. And out of pocket, or like with the, uh, with assistance of like of of, of like a fund, um, uh, and if the, 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 that creates an obvious like a uh, uh, income barrier to people, like the the example that I'm most familiar with is a uh, uh, women or people that can give birth who live in, for example, uh, El Paso, Texas, or rural Texas, yep. rural West Texas. I have to decide between whether like do I keep going to like my terrible minimum wage job, or do I have do I get into a van to travel to New Mexico, which is a two, three day trip and then come back, lose my job, but uh, uh, get the abortion that I need, uh, the abortion that I want. Uh, like that's obviously barbaric. And that's that's a, that, that's a particular uh, 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 burden we are inflicting exclusively on the people that are least equipped to handle it. Uh, providing for abortion in uh, a federal program is uh, obviously humane and uh, uh, broadly like shifts kind of that distribution of suffering uh, 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 out of or removes kind of uh, that this like. Well, it also takes it takes sort of. I think it sort of takes the language of suffering out of it too. It sort of also take, treats abortion as a healthcare right. Oh, exactly. Like the, you know, and it's just as something that all people everywhere, if they can give birth, they also have a right not to give birth, and it's not something that you need to do. Um, on the sly. It's not something you need to be ashamed of. Right. It's not something that is a different than other kinds of healthcare, which is way which is way it's conceptualized now. Right now, it's a thing that is defined by the federal government as different than any other kind of healthcare. Right. It's just a fucking, it's just a fucking procedure. Like, it's just a fucking pill. Like the idea of safe, legal, and rare is so pernicious. Uh, uh, who the fucking cares why you want to get an abortion? It's your body. Uh, like it's your needs. And the idea of saying, oh, this is like a, like, the suffering I was referring to was like the suffering of like being forced to by your own government to either like get the abortion you want or quit your job uh, right. uh, uh, and keep living like in the hell world we've built for uh, people who can give right. birth, particularly in poor parts of the country. I'm just sensitive to like calling, you know, I'm just sensitive to that. I should have known better for you, but like, but maybe we need to move on. I just feel like it's not enough attention being paid to that particular aspect of the bill that is pretty revolutionary. It makes me like, uh, 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 um, um. Abortion access across the U.S. is is has been like gutted uh, quickly and then slowly and then quickly again, and this yeah. finally like uh, makes it pretty clear that abortion is just a fucking uh, it, it is a it is a relatively simple uh, uh, medical, health, medical procedure, medical procedure uh, with a that like, you should be able to get wherever medical care is available. Right. It is not uh, different. Abortion it on is demand, not special. no question. Federal funding, like enough with yeah. like this capitulating safe, legal, rare bullshit that just like permits the idea that this is a, a harmful thing or a shameful thing. And uh, like, I, uh, uh, it, 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 that's bullshit. Like that, that does a lot of harm to a lot of people. Uh, this, this guts that, and there's a lot of other things, uh, in, in, in this bill too. That was particularly, particularly compelling. Um, cause obviously it flies, it, 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 it undoes the Hyde amendment. And the argument a lot of people make, including me, is that we can build the coalition. We can build the popular movement. We can build like the political uh, momentum to pass single payer. And if we can do that, we can also uh, uh, build the political momentum to uh, 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 pass uh, federal funding of abortion uh, within it. 
like these these things go hand in hand. This is the vision of healthcare justice we want in America, and these things are inseparable. There is no division. There is no like pecking order of oh you got to do A to to do B or these things are different. No, they're not different. They're the same. It's healthcare. This is just fucking healthcare. This is the same thing as getting a flu shot or getting a tonsillectomy. Well, not like tonsillectomy are, are kind of bullshit. Same thing as getting like an appendectomy or whatever. It's just a fucking. It's part of healthcare. It is not an independent, separate thing. You are exactly right when when, when you describe it that way. And I think that that's also uh, kind of in in miniature the way that this bill works and in shifting the way we think about healthcare, which is that it it is a basic. I mean, we can argue over whether you want to use the term right, but that it, it is something that all Americans get, and that we do not we do not um, make us you know stratify it. Um, we do not decide who deserves it. Uh, we say Americans get healthcare, right? And then we provide that health, and then we set up a system that provides that healthcare. There is no means testing. There is no uh, judgment about what kind of healthcare, like why you're going to get the healthcare you're going to get. Um, and no employer is allowed to tell you, <laughs> you know, what kind of healthcare you deserve or don't deserve. Uh, and people are untethered from this idea of employer-based healthcare, which is like radical for us, but the norm in the rest of the world. Right. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that the status quo that ACA uh, advocates is one of total employer domination on your body, right? Like your employer gets to decide whether or not you have access to contraception, whether or not you have access to uh, 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 hormone therapy, whether or not you have uh, access to like fucking blood transfusions. And that's kind of like, that's the norm. Uh, the, the the encroaching employer full complete employer domination not just of your well being in the financial sense but also in, also in the physical sense that's what the ACA represents this is a, a a significant break from that it also includes like it's a really really well thought out bill uh, it includes a fair transition for the relatively small number uh, of of displaced insurance administrative workers that's a, that's a thing unions have developed for a long time it's we're we're just like even if no other costs changed at all, a single payer program saves at least $200 billion a year uh, in pure administrative costs. We can take that money and use it to train the folks that might be displaced to give them uh, uh, like either like just sub- give them a golden parachute, subsidize regular folks, let them like live comfortably or let, uh, give them training, put them in new places. Like when reallocation happens in the private sector, when Silicon Valley uh, invents, I don't know, like an automatic – Fuck man, automatic car or something, something dumb, automatic laundry <laughs> machine, uh, and it dis- and it displaces a ton of of, of workers. We don't demand uh, uh, or we we don't expect uh, any kind of uh, reallocation or or training. We permit that as like the natural ebb and flow of the market. Here, someone's thinking ahead and saying we actually can spend this money to like make sure that people are treated fairly and justly uh, for the rest of, of of their working life if they choose to work, which is dope. It also includes uh, very excitingly for me. Uh, it reinvests a bunch of money in the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, uh, the AHRQ, uh, which is dope, right? Like, uh, uh, I'll go really, really brief on this, but I think this is super exciting. One of the things that we need, we just need uh, in the U.S. is a standard for how healthcare data is collected and stored and also a standard for, like, what a doctor does when you see them. Right now, like, what a doctor does to you or what a doctor, what a provider chooses to do is predicated upon, like, their training, their intuition, marketing to them, and, like, the general tendencies of their hospital. Uh, the same doctor, if this if, if this is a study that, this, uh, that, that was done, was pretty uh, remarkable in the 70s and continues today. A given doctor, the same doctor, in two different hospitals, one that has a lot of beds and one that has a smaller number of beds, will admit more patient to inpatient surgery 
uh, in the hospital with more beds than in the hospital with fewer beds, right? Like there's facility. And the, uh, the reason for that is because like there's this thing called Romer's Law. If a hospital builds a bed, it will fill it because hospitals get paid when people are in their beds. They get paid through Medicare. They get paid through insurers or whatever. And so a, a facility with more ability to take in patients will put will pump more folks in. And doctors aren't necessarily choosing to do this. It's a, it's a subconscious bias. But like uh, uh, there's no like hard and fast rule for like when sh- what should you do when you see a given person, right? Like the level of – and it's called evidence-based – uh, guidelines for what a doctor does or does not do when they see a patient uh, uh, hasn't really been built. Like the entire healthcare model we have now, the entire hospital level model we have now is less than 100 years old. All these things are much newer and more in flux than we think before. Another good example is tonsillectomy rates. Uh, there's a famous study in Vermont uh, about uh, tonsillectomy rates in Vermont, which is a relatively homogenous state. County to county, tonsillectomy rates among like the same number of people that are, that are sick with the same same conditions vary by up to like three or four X, sorry, up to seven X. Uh, um, like it's like, there's no rule book saying like if patient has A, B, and C, do D, E, or F. Uh, and so right. finally- Atul Gawande has written a lot about this, yep, right? Yep, 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 yep. He, he's written a lot about also like the, the need for standardization and checklists exactly. and, and using evidence to create um, pathways of care that everyone can hew to and you can decide what the best outcomes are. Yep. And also that, that and we should point out for people that think about this stuff, that helps control exactly. costs. Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's the cool part. Uh, um, so if you're, if you're thinking about money, we got it. We got an answer for you, too. One of the, like, one <laughs> of the problems of healthcare costs in the U.S. is you've got two things. You've got unit costs, like a, an MRI costs 5X year, what it costs in Australia. And you've got uh, um, utilization costs, right? Uh a person who goes to the hospital and is given the wrong procedure will be, or is not given adequate follow through, will be readmitted uh, uh, down the road, and that costs a bunch of money. Or um, a provider uh, might be incentivized to uh, give somebody an MRA or a test or a scan or a shot they don't need uh, one to cover their butt on like the fear of malpractice, but um, but two like because they get paid per unit of, of 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 care they provide, so costs go up even though actual like outcomes and actual quality uh, don't increase. Like they're, they're at a certain point, like the amount of healthcare a person uses, quote unquote, like how often they're in the hospital, how often they're admitted, doesn't really have an affect on like the overall outcome, like the quality uh, of, 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 of the care they get. And so if a single payer sets rules of, hey, when A happens, do B, C, D, it can begin paying on those models, right? That's really exciting because suddenly we have like an organization that's being explicitly called out and given funding. Right now, the AHRQ gets one percent, I think, of NIH funds, and mm-hmm. NIH funds are constantly being uh, being besieged. Finally, they're getting money to build the stuff, like to build the models of what healthcare should look like. Uh, uh, that one gives doctors some comfort because all of a sudden they're protected from malpractice by having a checklist they can follow, and two, like gives the payer some comfort because they know that like when a person presents with a broken hip or bronchitis or a pulmonary embolism or whatever, like we understand the things that go into the care of that, and we can build a payment model that adequately reflects uh, those costs and then can be adjusted for how sick the person is otherwise, how old they are, where you, whatever. It's, it's, it's good. It's so fucking good. And it's, it's, it's hidden uh, like three quarters of the way down in Bernie's bill. I read it and I got, I mean, that's basically pornographic to me. That's so exciting. <laughs> there is a ritual. There is a ritual. For your keys. For your keys. There's a ritual for almost everything, but to there's definitely everything. a ritual to looking for your keys. Where are they? You uh, said where, where do you check first? Me? 
Um, yeah. I check. So here's where my keys can be. They can either be on my dining room table. They can be on the couch that closest to the door, but fall between the cushion uh, and the back of the couch. Uh, they can be in my pants pocket. They can be in the bathroom. They can be uh, at my bedside table. They can be in the fridge. They can be in my car. They can be in my bag. Or they could be just gone. God, John, I think you do need tracker. <laughs> I think like, I that's need like tracker. A, that's a wide variety of places you need to look for your keys. I was going to ask for the strangest place you've ever found them, but maybe I don't want to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like for me, like I thought I was bad, but like the strangest place I've ever found my keys is probably the refrigerator. Like I have genuinely found them in the refrigerator before. I can definitely leave my... Like, my I could definitely like have a soda in my hand and my phone and my keys can be in the fridge. That'll happen. Right. The tracker is is a tracking device, obviously, and it's tracker, T-R-A-C-K-R. And they released the first tracking device eight years ago. They have a new tracker pixel. It is tiny. It is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. Uh, And you can put tracker on anything you tend to lose, which would include keys, um, what else do you lose? I lose kind of everything, like wallet. Um, I have my phone all the time, um, my iPad. Um, what else? Do you lose stuff? You're not a loser of stuff? It sounds like you were with the keys thing. Um, you know, I do okay. I do okay. I don't think, I, I think my personality would suggest that I lose things more than I do. Huh. You're, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I don't know. Like, I always feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the person that loses things. My husband's like, my husband's my living tracker thing. Um, I would probably, my marriage might go a little bit better if I had more of these things. Uh, you use your smartphone to find the thing that you've lost. So I guess you actually, oh, wait, you know what? You can use the tracker to find your smartphone. It says here. You just press the button on the tracker and the phone rings, even if it's on silent. So I need to get one of these in my life. Um, and you can locate your item even if it's miles away because Tracker uses a crowdsourcing uh, location network. It is the largest in the world. Um, they say it's like Waze, but for finding things. Cool. Uh, you live in LA, you might probably use Waze. So that might mean more to you than it does to me. You Traffic know, here is not so bad. I use Google Maps. Um, you know, it's the same. <laughs> And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. And um, listeners of the program will get 20% off any order if they go to thetracker.com slash friends. That's thetracker.com, T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R.com. So it's thetracker.com slash friends, but there's no E in Tracker. There's no E in Tracker and there's a V before Tracker. But there's a V. And you have to go to slash friends and you get 20% off. So do it. I would ask you a question um, that I actually don't know the answer to about this bill, which is I personally, I'm in recovery, part of the recovery community. uh, And so, you know, opioid epidemic funding and care, and I actually think of it more as an addiction epidemic, um, is something I've been paying attention to. And one of the evil things about Cassidy Graham, obviously, is it cuts that. How does single payer impact that health problem? Oh, okay, cool. You set me up for a thing that I really wanted to talk about, which is the idea of health justice. Um, when, so I promise uh, uh, I, I will get to that. Here's, here, here's how, how I want to get there. When the, 
But right now, we all, like as a society, uh, as, as a government which represents our society, we all bear the costs of when people get sick, when people suffer, when people die unnecessarily. When people suffer and die from preventable conditions, when people, like, like a, a, a cardiac failure that comes from diabetes, from lack of nutrition, we suffer together when people uh, uh, suffer and die from uh, addictions that they weren't able to get help to manage uh, or when they're uh, uh, when the only uh, uh, tools they've available to them are things like uh, unclean needles and so they get comorbidities like hep C. Uh, when we suffer uh, together, when people uh, die from any kind of preventable condition, whether physical in their body or in the world around them. We already like all suffer from that thing. And the government right. bears the costs of, 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 of that down the road. Either because uh, your insurer doesn't, doesn't, doesn't give a fuck about you, right? Once you change plans or age out or become too poor to get insured, like you're no longer their problem. But the government does kind of bear those costs, right? Either once you turn 65, uh, uh, they're on the hook, uh, hook for, for all that spending. If you're below a certain income level, a certain state, they're on the hook for all that spending. And fundamentally, like this has mass implications for like the health of their country. And whether that's, whether you want to get yeah. like, quantitative like I that. I was going to say the opioid epidemic, the number I think it's thrown around is it costs like $71 billion a it's, year. It is some in like, terms of that, that, missed work, um, emotional and medical costs, all that. It, it, it's, so, it's, and, and I remember reading a paper, I think it was, we need to spend an additional 96 to, to begin treating it thoroughly. And that's just um, to compensate. I, I, I don't, don't, Cut this part out. I'll see if I can find this thing and, and I can send it to you. But somebody put together like an accurate projection of no, I think that's how right. much I it think would that's cost to actually billion. treat this thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that was the start. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It, was the, it, was, it was the beginning of care, not the actual like full course of it. It was $96 yeah. billion. Uh, uh, and so like, and opioid... Uh, uh, addictions are a problem that have comorbidities, right? Opioid addiction can lead to hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is really expensive to treat. It can go hand in hand with HIV AIDS through a, a needle sharing. Uh, that causes- uh, Foster care. Of, it puts kids into foster yep. care. You've, you've, you've got kids uh, that, that, that are left to themselves. Which is- a federal, pro, you know, which the government winds up paying for, right. because oh, and then you've got like the fucking carceralism of it, right? Uh, 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 you, yeah. well, we we just throw because we don't want to build the healthcare program to take care of folks. We just throw them into jail, and that's where the costs go, and that is compounding costs because those people are out of the workforce and their families suffer. Like all these problems are interconnected, and we all together as a society or through government bear the costs of those, right? Either in the financial sense through like having to pay for these things, or like in like the emotional, like moral sense of we watch people around us suffer and die, and it's our families, it's our friends, it's people around us, and that sucks. Uh, so we already bear those costs. But what a single payer does is a single payer compels caring for like the costs of providing care to the government as well, right? So the entire scope of why these things happen and where these costs go, both in the financial and moral sense, are now like the risk are now fully within the domain of the federal single payer. And that does a lot, right? Because if your population is getting sick and your population is dying because they are suffering from an like an addiction epidemic, then investing in addiction therapy, investing in treatment becomes a form of healthcare, and you invest in 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 therapy and treatment to bring healthcare long term costs down. If you're pop- like residential treatment, you, it becomes yes. the the cost of residential treatment becomes something that it's worth it for the government to bear because that's right now the thing that you know tends to work. I'll say I went to residential treatment. I definitely needed it. Humane local therapy is better now and much, much better downstream. It's it's an obvious thing that only a single payer can really begin leaning toward. Right. And all the other kinds of courses of treatment that 
I have, I will just say, I have some mixed feelings about some of the medical assisted stuff, but it's important to have as part of the recipe and important to study it. Right. Which is also what you can do under single payer, which is like right now, all the opioid replacement stuff is really um, kind of tightly held and parceled out to people. Um, and it deserves to be used as much as it can be and to be studied. So it starts that part of it becomes possible it, too. Instead of delegating this this problem to like fucking cops in small communities across the Northeast and the Appalachian region, like we, this, it's a it is a national epidemic, and it's a thing that needs to be studied. We need to evaluate what to do, and we need to like put the money into like taking care of people as early as possible in ways that don't fucking ruin their lives uh, uh, or the lives of people around them down the road. And we can do that. And we can also like that's both the correct thing to do, like as a moral community, and it's the correct thing to do like from straight up fiscal uh, uh, incentives of, of taking care of people early so they don't uh, uh, get sicker later. Obviously, this is something issue I care about a lot. And um, it's getting, it's this epidemic, 250% increase, I think, in the past God. 15 years in uh, overdose deaths. Um, we are in desperate times and we need to be able to use desperate measures. Um, and this, a single payer plan would give us the tools to do that, like open, let's say, safe um, injection sites. Right. Um, and allow for supervised use so that you people don't die from overdoses. <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> you know? it's the, it, it is both the obvious and responsible, and I guess not both three, and like moral uh, uh, moral thing to do. And I mean, but that that, that idea, uh, this idea of treating the opioid the addiction epidemic as a like as a as a as a healthcare. Uh, as a problem to be resolved through healthcare, they're investing in healthcare that extends, right? Uh, um, right? If your population is getting sick and their population is dying because the um, the places they live aren't adequate, they live in substandard housing like the Grenfell Towers or um, the ghost ship uh, warehouse in Oakland. Uh, only middle class people. There was a uh, there was a talk in Oakland uh, that there was a good line that I heard. Only middle class people die. And poor people die in fires. Nobody wealthy ever, uh, ever dies in the fire. If people live in substandard housing, it's polluted, uh, it's unsafe, or they don't have housing at all, no adequate housing, you die much, much quicker of exposure than you do cancer, then providing healthcare, or sorry, providing housing becomes a form of healthcare. And you provide cheap, affordable, subsidized housing to bring healthcare costs down. If folks are getting sick and folks are getting dying because the food they have access to is uh unnutritious or, or, or makes them sick or they don't have access to healthy food or the healthy food near them is, is, is super unaffordable because carrots cost $6. Then mm. like, and they're getting sick and they're dying from it. They're getting diabetes. Diabetes turns into cardiac failure. Then providing free or subsidized nutritious food and the space and the time to cook it becomes a form of healthcare. And you pay and you fund food to bring healthcare costs down. All these ideas are interconnected, right? This is the fundamental idea of, of health justice. Uh, and I, I find it extremely compelling, right? Like all these, like all these different problems, uh, opioid or the, uh, the, uh, uh, addiction epidemic, uh, uh, food deserts, substandard housing, uh, domestic assault, domestic violence, police brutality, all these things are interconnected. And the multi-payer for-profit model has proven itself inadequate, unable, and unwilling to even consider addressing these things. A single payer does not in and of itself tackle these problems, but it finally gives us the tools and the leverage to joust at it. And that's so fucking cool. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a question that I know... Um 
you've been asked before because I've asked it. Uh, but I, I think other people might want to hear the answer, which is that um, how one response by someone with libertarianish concerns to the to this picture you're describing would be, oh, you're getting government involved in my life too much. Um, they're going to outlaw French fries. They're going to outlaw Sundays. Um, I'm going to be the government's going to be telling me what I can and can't do with my body. Uh, I I have a I have a feeling I know what your answer is. So please. I would say to that person, hey, shut up, nerd. Check this out. Um, we already <laughs> like let people. We already have organizations that uh, tell us what we can and can't do with our bodies. We just delegate it to private corporations that aren't accountable to us, right? Um, We've 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 given like oh shit okay so there's two things uh, two examples of that one uh, we t- what we talked about before um, a total employer dominance uh, uh, of your mm-hmm. healthcare your employer gets to choose how much your healthcare costs what you have access to uh, what you do and do not get to have where you can and cannot go that fucking sucks secondly like insurers themselves also regulate what kinds of uh, care you have access to and don't have access to there was a big there's a lawsuit in Florida. Uh, that under section 1557 of the ACA, uh, which is just kind of a stapling together of things like Title IX uh, and other um, protected class laws. Uh, uh, there was a lawsuit articulating the idea that um, someone's pre-existing conditions are protected class. You can't deny someone access to care based upon uh, what conditions they they have. Insurers were doing a thing, I think it was, no, I'm not positive, uh, where they were making... Uh, so you have a drug formulary, which is like how much a given tier of drugs cost, whatever, usually generics from the bottom and uh, uh, cancer drugs are up top. They were taking these 16 drugs used to treat HIV AIDS and spreading them across the formulary, not including some, putting some way up top, really making having insurance or having their particular plan of insurance unfeasible or untenable or extremely expensive for a person with HIV AIDS. That's one step. Second step was uh, there was a, a case where uh, – an insurer was requiring prior authorization on Truvada, which is a prophylactic. It's like PrEP drug uh, for people who might get HIV AIDS. Uh, uh, it just it helps protect against uh, against contracting it. Uh, prior authorization means your doctor has to call your insurer, and your insurer gives the, th- the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And this insurer was denying people access to a preventative drug uh, because they were quote it was indicative that they were quote engaging in high risk homosexual behavior. They said someone couldn't get insured, couldn't get a preventive drug because uh, uh, the insurer thought they uh, they they might be too gay to get it. That's barbaric. And like, that's that, that, that sounds like a joke, but that's literally the policy that they enacted. We've let these private companies tell us what healthcare we're allowed to have or not have. A thing like PrEP is a no-brainer. Nationalize it, buy it out, give it to everyone. No one like we have solved HIV AIDS. We have drugs that 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 that, that prevent you from getting it. We have therapies that uh, and treatment plans that that mitigate the effects if you do get it. Uh, uh, and this insurer chose like no single payer would deny somebody preventive medicine if they thought they needed it. That's uh, that's like that's literally the first thing you do uh, when you're building healthcare models. Find out ways to give prevent, pre- primary preventive preventive care uh, to people to prevent things that cause costs uh, down the road. But no, because we have chosen to let private companies that operate not in our interest, but that those of their investors or of their, uh, if, if they're closely held uh, of their owners, dictate what care looks like in America and who is permitted to have it. Uh, we have built this hell world that we live in now, and it, it primarily affects those who are already vulnerable. So fuck mm-hmm. off, 
nerd, uh, we, uh, like, like by making the government <laughs> accountable uh, to, to, to determine like what kind of care looks like, we make uh, we make our representatives a, a, accountable yep. for it, right? That's like that, that's a much a more optimistic it, vision of how a country works than uh, uh, letting a bunch of fucking CEOs uh, tell us what care we can and can't have. I think when people um, talk about being worried about government controlling our lives too much, they forget that we're we're the government. And I don't see a future in which Americans are going to allow their senators and representatives to outlaw French fries. I just right. Got to have those fries going to happen. Yeah. All right. Um, Tim, thank you so much. Uh, I think this is where we can wrap up. Um, I hope that we have a chance to talk again because I hope that this single payer bill continues to be a part of our national conversation, if not actually enacted anytime soon, probably not. Um, and I, I hope we never talk about Cassidy Graham again. Yeah. I hope that I hope we d- that d- just goes away. Drowns in the but, bathtub of history and we can forget about it. Yeah. Anyway, so you also uh you're on a speaking tour. People should people do is there a website that people can go to I'm, or follow you on I'm Twitter? I'm pretty shotgun. Or, you can follow me on Twitter. My username is Krulge, C-R-U-L-G-E. It's a nonsense word. I wrote a script to find the shortest non-word I could on Twitter and I made that my username. Um, I have a newsletter that I send out about once every other week. It's healthcare policy news and things that I think are particularly interesting. I wrote about Sanders's bill last night around five in the morning. Um, did some stuff on Cassidy Graham, which other shit it's, uh, if you go to tinyletter.com slash error, E-R-R-O-R, I got the first username. I got an early username and then new, most newly of all, that's a word. Uh, my partner and I put, have put together a podcast on healthcare policy and metal music. Uh, she is a healthcare lawyer who works primarily um, on reproductive justice and working with people who are uh, um, and work, working on on, on on trans healthcare. She's much smarter than I am, and I'm a general. Uh, I'm really interested in payment reform and payment structuring. It's called Heavy Medical, uh, Heavy X Medical. All these things are on my Twitter. I link them all there. Um, but we both like metal music. We both like healthcare justice. And about every other week or so, we talk about both those things um, until. Like uh, we pick a given topic, we pick a given white paper, uh, discuss them, and then find a metal band we like and explain why they kick ass for about five minutes. For people who find the weeds like too lightweight, like that, you're you're the solution for that. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I there are some parts. Do you think weeds- Ezra Klein and, and Matt Iglesias like don't take things seriously enough? Don't get it. Don't like get into it and really grapple with the issues. Like you're the. I would uh, I would describe level. yeah if if it, to make the weeds comparison I would say heavy medical is a lot like weeds but without the knee jerk iconoclasm and instead a sense of unbridled optimism about what things can be possible and what things must be possible. All right, thank you so much, Tim. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you. And that is it for the show. Uh, as usual, you can follow the show on Twitter at crooked underscore friends. You can follow me on Twitter at Anna Marie Cox. And you can write to the show. We accept uh, questions and problems uh, from people that might want the help of the show, meaning me and usually a guest, in figuring out how to deal with politics and relationships and relationships and politics, any difficult or awkward conversations you may be having in your life or want to be having in your life. And that email address for the show is with friends like pod at Gmail. Again, that's with friends like pod at Gmail. And if you want to include an audio version of your question, that would be awesome. If you don't, just please include some contact info because we might ask you for an audio version or just ask you for permission to make an audio version. 
keep fighting the good fight, guys. Um, we're almost there. Change is coming. Have a great weekend. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.